The Jet Set Breakfast with Michelle Constant. Giving us a taste of the first guest in our journey of collective impact and looking at the origins of something that is created. Uh, on the line, we have Lucy McGarry. Lucy McGarry is the co-founder of something called Latitudes Online, which is a curated market for art from Africa online. And uh, the story that we're following today is the story of a silk scarf. It's called Lamad. And we want to know how the scarf was imagined, uh, innovated, the artists that were worked on that silk scarf, and indeed how it then impacts the fashion industry in South Africa as well. Lucy McGarry, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Michelle. Thanks so much for having me this morning. So we're intrigued. This is the first time we're testing out this kind of way of looking at something, but we were just talking about it amongst our team, is that we'll get something or look at something or buy something or whatever the case may be, and then we go... What's the actual story behind this? Who are the people behind this? And what makes it special, not just from one point of view, but from the fact that it does become a much broader um, interconnected system of people that are doing fabulous things, which is why we are going to that famous silk scarf. And we're going to tweet an image of that silk scarf um, so that people can see it and people can look at it as well. Lucy, first of all, the Bruce Springsteen, I'm on fire. How does that uh, work with uh, the journey that we're about to go on? Um, it's just one of my personal favorites. Um, it was kind of released around the time that I was born and around me at my childhood. And it's 
the song that we kind of danced to as a family. But um, I think what kind of, if I can tie it back to my career and, and maybe the the artists that we end up working with, is that I think Springsteen is timeless and he's had such a sort of an amazing long trajectory of a career. And I've always respected that after having read Born to Run. And I just, and I think that that's kind of what we look for in the artists that we work with, is that we look for artists that are poised for long and sustainable and um, very fruitful and rich careers. And yeah, so I think that's kind of the respect that I have for Springsteen. So let's talk to artists with rich careers and go to this idea of um, Latitudes, which is a market for art from Africa online. How does it actually work? So we we started as a, an actual physical fair in 2019, on, and we had a, a, a beautiful event at Santon's Nelson Mandela Square. But then, you know, COVID arrived the following year, and we pivoted very quickly to become, as you said, an online marketplace for art from Africa. Um, and we were quite proud of being, you know, first to market in that space. And and our kind of our whole goal is to create voices for artists, both independent artists and represented artists, and to connect artists with collectors. And it's been amazing. So we've now got over 850 artists on the platform, 40 galleries, and about 20 collaborative studios. We've been viewed in 140 countries, and um, and we 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 just believe we're making it so accessible. So we put an artist's work up who's not necessarily had access to the market before, and people are able to buy in any kind of country. We also set up a whole kind of logistical side to the business so that we make sure that every work is delivered and packed and shipped and insured and everything um, arrives beautifully on the other end. So that's really what we we've we've just made art more accessible to the world, African art. So, Lucy, perhaps there are two areas that that are worth picking up on that particular uh, notion. And the one is the notion of access for an artist and how an artist gets access to markets. And linked to that is the the argument of, and it's a very traditional argument, is that artists need to have a geographic or physical gallery in order to have access to markets. Does having an online curated market for art from Africa suggest differently? I think so. You know, that's something that we're trying to prove. But also we have great respect for the work of galleries because it's it's a really um, intense relationship that galleries have with their artists. And it's really a lot around mentorship and and support. And that's actually what we found by initiating this online marketplace is we can put works up on you know, any anybody can start a website and and start selling art online, but it actually it needs to go so much deeper than that, and so that's why we've you know started on educational programs, um, two of which are called Curator Lab and Artist Lab, where we mentor and really work with artists very closely. Um, and as I mentioned, we have this whole logistical back end, and you know, it, it it's it's not something that can just be done just embracing the online space. It has to go much deeper than that. And so, and especially in an African context, you know, where, um, you know, the infrastructure is not as it is in the U.S. and in Europe. So, mm. so, so these are all lessons that we're learning, but they, I think they make the job much more rewarding. 
So you talk about, or I spoke about access to markets for the artist. Then, of course, there's your access to markets. How do you do that? Yeah, so that's also something we're we're learning and we are heavily investing in kind of advertising and and you have to do all kinds of things to engage your audience on a constant basis. So we actually run a sort of a glorified online magazine. We release a newsletter every week um, with really rich content um, to kind of educate both artists and collectors around the around the industry. Um, and we run all kinds of things like timed online auctions and timed sales to to attract people to our site. So it's it's something which is, you know, running an online site is a is a daily activity mm. and involves a lot of attention. Yeah. And I think people often underestimate that. We're chatting to Lucy McGarry. She's the co-founder of Latitudes Online, which is an online curated market for art from Africa. And if you're listening and you do have access to um, to Wi-Fi, why don't you go online and look at the website and look at some of the artists who are on that website as well. It's L-A-T-I-T-U-D-E-S dot online, latitudes dot online. You'll be able to see some of the artists. Lucy, when we come back, we're going to go to the picture of that scarf, that scarf, the one that uh, we're trying to find out how it came into being, who came up with the idea, who was the artist, and we'll move forward on that. Here, there, and everywhere. SAFM 107.1 FM in Seapoint. 9.22, you are with SFM and the JSB. And today we're looking at uh, collective impact. How do we look at all the people that come together to create something of great beauty in this case? And what is the impact? What is the impact on our economy? What is the impact on our sense of confidence in terms of what we are able to create? So we're looking at a silk scarf. And the silk scarves are called the Lamad silk scarves. And what we're doing is we're going to uh, the uh, person who imagined the idea. We're going to the artist who actually created the work, wonderful young artist, Pebble Fatso McQuena, and uh, we'll chat to him in a moment. But first, uh, let's go back to Lisa McGarry, who's the co-founder of Latitudes Online. And uh, Lisa, tell us about the creation, and, and not the physical creation, because we're going to go to the, the, the people working in fashion to understand what the practicalities of that are. But where does an idea like this come from? So the Mad Collection was actually born in 2012, and it's a, it was a collaboration between visual artists and the fashion world. And the whole idea was really to once again make art more accessible um, and wearable as well. So we've had many collections over the years, <clears throat> but then I, I started Latitudes with my co-founder, Roberta Kochi in 2019, as mentioned. And then our kind of access to all these artists just grew, um, grew dramatically. So we thought, why not bring a new collection into life? And, and so we invited these eight artists who we were so excited about and who, as I mentioned before, are really poised for kind of international success. And, and it invited them to create an artwork that would then be translated onto 100% silk. And, 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 
and getting to that process is a little bit tricky because you can't just create any kind of work and believe that it will be successful as a wearable item. So we went through many iterations to find the perfect work, and it took us almost a year to actually create this collection. Um, and and working with artists like Pebble Fatou Mukena has been an absolute joy. And I think we went through about three or four iterations before we found the perfect work. So Lucy, Lucy, we're going to talk to Pebble Fatso in a moment. And, uh, you know, I mean, his kind of trajectory is is something that I stand in awe of. But what does it take to say, okay, fine, we're going to take the the fashion world and we're going to take the art world and we're going to build, I mean, basically build a small economic um, journey out of it. What does it take to do that? Yeah, so it really does take a lot of collaboration and I think that's really the power of working in South Africa at the moment is there are so many different young entrepreneurs creating exciting businesses and um, one of whom is Lisa Jaffe of Guillotine Design and we've worked together um, for many years and, and Lisa as a designer has given me a lot of knowledge about how to create not only scarves but how to translate um into actual wearable garments of garment design, which in which she's very skilled. And so you work with so many different people, um, both locally and internationally, to create a collection like this. Silk is actually best sourced in China, where you can get many, many different weights of silk. And yeah. um, I've learned about, you know, many different types of silk, from silk twill to habitat to... Um, uh, silk satin of which this collection is created so and yeah and so we're stocking the scarves at guillotine which is at 44 stanley and we had a wonderful launch the other day uh, where all the artists came to join us as well and speak about how the collaboration came into fruition so in closing lisa we we think of an artwork as something that we buy and then um, it's part of a collection. Is um, having one of the silk scarves or having the entire selection of different artists uh, part of collecting as well? And does it uh, maintain its value in the same way that an artwork might? That's a great question. So we, I have actually had many people purchase the scarves to put them up on their walls and frame <laughs> them. So we do see that as opposed to wearing them around your neck. And and we have limited editions, so they're only editions of 50 per artwork. So there is a value in that thing. Yeah. But also what we've done is we've taken it a step further, which we're really excited about now, is that we've actually created an NFT to be sold with any, art, any silk scarf. And an NFT is a non-fungible token. And, and the whole art world has kind of gone a bit crazy with NFTs. But what we believe is really important about them is that they provide value and authenticity. So every person that buys a scarf will have an NFT, which then accrues in value and can be tracked. Its history and provenance can be tracked online and resold. And so you get this kind of digital asset that comes along with a scarf. So it's all about kind of education and demystifying the NFT world, which is quite exciting for us. But we do believe that the scarf in itself has has value and integrity. And now we're excited about introducing this added layer of of collecting um, 
like bringing a new conversation to the scar. Well, certainly the concept of non-fungible tokens, NFTs, was raised on our show yesterday. Um, we are going to see if we can't address it further next week because it is uh, coming up in more and more spaces when it comes to the art sector, but also other creative spaces as well. Our next guest, uh, as we move through this journey of this scarf, is in fact the artist, Pebo Fatso Mukwena. Pebo Fatso's work is one of the artworks on one of the silk scarves. And he's an artist that uh, I've had the real joy of following over many years um, from the time that he was at school, well, at university school, um, and when he was uh, creating artworks. And he's certainly one of those people that has an entrepreneurial eye and mind, but also has the need to constantly learn. And I, I think that's an extraordinary thing. But let's crack in with his choice of song. Wow, who would have thought? Learn something new every day. Krangbin are in fact a um, Texan trio. They hail from the United States, but like their name, which is Thai, they focus on uh, the history of uh, 60s Thai music, and that's a track called August 10th, and that's a great choice of song. I mean, as Ndosh, our producer, said, Geez, the music sounds like the scarf, soft, silky, almost psychedelic, flowing. And on the line is Pebo Fatso Mukwena, the choice of the song, a painter, a printmaker, an educator, and uh, we're triangulating him all the way back to that famous silk scarf. Pebo, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, hi, Michelle. It's an absolute honor to be here, and a uh, good hello to your listeners, too. So, okay. First of all, we want to know that choice song. Whoa, love it, and I didn't know it, and I always love to hear of new music. Talk to us about it. Ooh, um, where do I, I begin? Um, so I am, uh, my sister calls me a music nerd because I'm always <laughs> online, yes. uh, and I'm always searching for new sounds, and I'm just constantly learning about um, where bands uh, pull their inspiration from, and how they're thinking about, I don't know, the technical aspects, so like how they think about composition, form, um, musicality, pitch, because um, there's, 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 there's a really close re- relationship between that and the way that I work, actually, in my paintings. So let's talk about that close relationship between the work and your paintings. How does that work? You know, earlier on we were talking about um, books and jazz, and yes. uh, and obviously art and music are, are are deeply aligned. How does that work for you? What's that process? Sure. Um, I think I think for me there are many processes actually at play, and it's not just one. Because um, I think I think that in that relationship, there's so many um, things, and there's so many other disciplines that music and art are both trying to articulate. Um, so they might try to articulate uh, politics, they might try to articulate economics, they might try to articulate um, cultural work, they might try to articulate architecture, you know, so so I think it's, you know, it's this relationship is where things kind of come together and they mold together to be expressed to other people. Um, who might not have an appetite to learn, but you know, people learn in multiple ways. 
uh, and there's multiple intelligences too. So you know, um, so people might might learn economics through color, or they might learn hmm. mathematics through mathematics to learn. Apologies for that. And so yeah. I think um, I'm in that strange space. <laughs> <laughs> You're in that cross sector space. Pebble yeah. so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about your very, very early works as a printmaker. And yes. in those early days, um, I'm not even sure if you were out of school yet. I don't think you were. You were creating prints about that you called the lost families. Talk to yes. us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, so I had started working um, at school uh, in, in the second year, I think. And the idea actually um, to create uh, portraits um, with missing with missing uh, family members was actually started in first year um, around the end of first year. And one of the things that I wanted to bring people's attention to um, was uh, the fact that so many uh, parents or so many fathers, particularly, they don't um, you know they don't really stick around um, yeah. for the kids to grow and I thought that that was a, a particularly um, important um, life item uh, if I can say to you know to you know to show people um, you know how it looks like because you know far too often these problems are often quite abstract yes um, and we don't really know the psychological effects behind them but when something is made visual it's easier it's easier to see and therefore it's easier to um, to have perspectives about. Um, and so I had um, started working, and this is actually quite a funny story. So I so I was basically working as a student during the day, would print these at night um, as an artist. Right? And so um, luckily for me, and thank God that they were really um, successful and they, and people really began to have conversations about this, which I thought um, was far more valuable than the economic um, value placed on the prints. The conversations for me were, were far more valuable. Huh. You know, uh, Pepe Fatso, one of the things, and, and it's probably why I, I found those particular works very striking, was, um, you know, in the last week we've had all these conversations about... Um, people who have been disappeared, you know, during the apartheid era where we don't know where they are. We, we assume that they may no longer be alive and therefore the question is where are their bodies and where are their bodies buried? And, and it's deeply traumatic for the families that are still living. And I think about your pictures a lot when I think about that because in many ways you, you, you talk about the ghost of the person who is there but not there. Um, yes. in your images and that's that's a very powerful moving um experience and i wonder if people have have addressed that with you as well um yes well i think um but first of all i i really need to thank um the male my male uh, my male uh quote unquote can, uh, counterparts for actually being there for me and really supporting me through um through being an artist because it is a difficult path. Uh, you know, when I told my mother and father that I wanted mm. to be an artist, you know, they, 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 you know, because they didn't have access to the knowledge, they didn't really know how it functions. Um, and so I think when they, um, when they then um, gave me their trust, 
um, it was then imperative for me to not only to a learn as much as I can, but also to share um, all of this information with how this um, different um, uh, discipline or or industry slash economy works, and you know, still supporting me. And I think having that. Um, foundation is really, really helpful um, for me to actually um, approach other people, um, particularly family members, like who don't have that support system. And then it allows me to actually um, be that father that they really never had. Yeah, that's amazing. Pebofatso, let's uh, move to this famous scarf. We're all talking about the silk scarf and we're trying to understand the journey of the silk scarf, where it starts and will end up, of course, with Lisa Jaffe and in in the fashion world and figure out how does that scarf get made? How does that silk come across to us in South Africa? Do we even make silk in South Africa? Which I don't think we do, but we'll follow with that in a moment. And I want to ask you, when I look at the image that you have on that scarf, and we've tweeted it out, so if anybody wants to see it, at SAFM Radio, hashtag SAFM JSP or JSB or at Mish Constant. That is a far cry from the lost family images. This is something very contemporary, very abstract. Yes. And I'm wondering, do you need to rethink how you create an artwork, given that it's going to go not onto paper as a print, but onto something, uh, a fabric like silk? Did you have to think about that? Yes. Um, so I uh, so I think um, Lucy also mentioned that um, the image or the choice of image had to go through um, three um, iterations, and which is true. Um, because um, the first work, um, I, I can't remember really, because um, it was last year. But um, it went. We thought about we thought about that particular image. Um, that's also a print as well. Um, but it but it didn't um, it didn't feel um, uh, ready uh, to print. And then we scrapped that. Went to a um, another image, which is um, a painting of mine. And because that painting um, was of a rectangular form, and the scarf was um, a square form. Um, that we didn't work necessarily either. find a way to we couldn't find a way to rearrange um, <laughs> the composition, and so we ended up um, with this with this um, work. And then it was then easier to uh, to redesign it into um, the form of the scarf. And so then we went, and so we went with that, and. Yeah, it, it, it's and and the scarf is the result. Do do some of the um, images do some images, and and I'm not talking about the shape of where you print it on, etc. But do some images work better on fabric, or work worse on fabric? Oh, that's a that's <laughs> a that's a tricky question. <laughs> um, I think so. Um, because I think one, um, I think one must understand that um, in my paintings, um, my paintings very often um, encrypt or code messages um, through the way that they've been laid out, uh, and they meant for you know um, a, a small number of people viewing the work to contemplate. As you get to something as a scarf, um, it works uh, contradictory to that. Um, it's meant for the public, um, and there's other uh, particular kinds of uh, images, uh, notions, colors uh, that one must be aware of um, 
because sometimes they, um, when you print, um, what you see on screen isn't necessarily what you um, what you get on fabric. And also, depending on the kind of fabric um, that you use, that will that will determine um, whether the image is legible or not. Um, so there's very technical um, technical nuances that one has hmm. to be aware of when when translating an artwork uh, to a full scarf in this case. Pebo, there's no doubt that uh, you have made yourself a become a sustainable and indeed flourishing artist. Um, Thank you. If you give advice to other youngsters who came are coming out of uh, school or maybe tertiary institutions, what advice would you give them in terms of that flourishing? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, first of all, thank you. Um, but, uh, but I think there are two things I think that are fundamental. I think, A, um, school never ends. You know, in Susutu, um, there's this um, old adage that says that school has failed, you know, which means that, like, learning never stops, you know. Yeah. And even if you're out of school, um, it is even more crucial um, to learn as much as you can about everything, really. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, just keep yourself out of trouble. <laughs> um, eat well, drink plenty of water, and always aim for um, seven hours of sleep a day. Who would have thought that an artist would give that as advice? I absolutely love it. <laughs> Pebo Fatso, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to check out your work, they can just go onto your website, ne? Yes, that's correct. Pebofatsomokwena.co.za uh, Definitely go and have a look at his work. Pebofatsomokwena.co.za Diverse selection of works, but fascinating stuff as well. Drink water, seven hours sleep, and keep on studying and learning. That's our artist. And we want to say thank you to Pebble for A, introducing us to a brand new band that we hadn't heard. Beautiful stuff. And also we want to celebrate his parents for um, allowing, not even allowing, but supporting him in his journey forward as an artist. It's quarter to ten. We crack into the third song and our third guest as we follow the journey of our scarf. Michelle Constant on SAFM. Ten to ten, and that is the choice song of our third guest in our story of the scarf. Yep, we've done guest presenter differently today. We just thought we wanted to try and understand what provenance of something is. What is the beginning of something or the origin of something? And how do we get to a product at the end of that process that uh, can tell the story of so many different people and so many different opportunities, be it economic, financial, non-financial, and the like. And what does that cross-sector engagement talk about? So we started off with Lucy McGarry, who is the founder of an online art market, which uh, talks to art from the continent of Africa. We then went on to the artist, Pebo Fatso McQuena, who started out creating prints called Lost Families and focusing on um, almost like the ghost of people in an image and then ended up creating artworks which are now being found on these Lamad scarves. And the third person who is part of that triangle, if we want to call it, 
is obviously the person who works in fashion and how she thinks about fashion and how do we think about the process because this is now literally the process of making the scarf. On the line we have someone who is an extraordinary designer and really thinks about sustainability when it comes to clothing. Lisa Jaffe, founder of Guillotine. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks for having me. So Lisa... Lisa, very briefly, um, I have to go to your choice song of Imogen Heap because one of the things, of course, about Imogen Heap, which was your song and the track's called I'm God, is that she actually uses technology. She literally uses clothing or a glove to um, drive her music. How it works, I've never really quite figured it out, but I'm sure anybody who's involved in tech can, can understand it. And I thought, now there's an interesting thing, that her glove is just filled with all sorts of, um, uh, what do you call them? Um, uh, points of energy or points, you know, tech, you know, points that she can then pluck from, join, and then create the music. I wonder if... That's, that's incredible. I didn't even know that. Yeah, you, yeah, <laughs> you need to go on. It's quite extraordinary. Oh, that's amazing. So she... so. In a way, I mean, it's not really fashion, but it is fashion. I mean, fashion, technology, and a means to move forward. And I suppose it looks to the future. And I'd like to ask you very briefly, how do you see the future in fashion? Well, I think we are in an incredibly exciting period. And I think the devastation of COVID and all the um, trauma it brought has also brought in in many... um, in many, uh, played many roles for many people. It hasn't just been um, one thing. It's a very multifaceted thing, this pandemic, what the outcomes have been. So for fashion, this, the bubble has burst and it's desperately needed to happen. Um, it was a crazy um, cyclic machine that was basically spitting out too many clothes globally with too many landfills, um, the fashion, I mean, with, with, in, with your big um, brands, it's still happening. But everybody sort of had to take a step back, and I'm, I'm really hoping that those cycles do not accelerate and they do calm down a bit because no one can, no one, even the people that work in these industries, can't sustain that pace. Yeah. And no one needs that many clothes either. And um, we are all of the philosophy, certainly designers in this country and many others who are are, um, into sustainability, is buy less and buy better, buy things that are going to last for a very, very long time. Um, It's it's better on the consumer's pocket. It's better for the, um, the environment. And ultimately, you are buying a better quality product. So it kind of ticks all the boxes. Um, so let's talk think, about buying better and let's talk about this this scarf. I mean, we followed the journey of the kind of inception of it to the actual creation of the artwork. And now we have this yes. silk scarf that literally has to be made. How do you make it sustainably? Well, a way to make it sustainably is to create limited editions. Yeah. So you don't overproduce. The yeah. collection. Often, when things are overproduced, they become meaningless. Um, so the, this collection is incredibly limited. So when you do purchase it, you actually are buying a piece of artwork, as you would be as if you were buying a print, a limited edition print. 
So it keeps it special and it keeps it um, collectible and it keeps it desirable, I guess. And then it's it's not a meaningless product. Um, if you put, if you keep all these things like we also do in our collections and many other designers, there's a limited edition of fabric and there's a limited edition of a particular style because you don't want things to land up becoming meaningless, losing value, and that end up the in the inherent value is really there. It is really there. Yeah. Lisa, in the creation of the scarf, I mean, we were talking to Pebo about the challenges of being an, of creating an artwork that then goes on to fabric. How do you deal with that? Because that's your your job is now to make operational um, a concept. Yes, so um, production is is incredibly difficult. Generally, it's it's one of the hardest parts to get right because inception is is your creation and then output is quite quite challenging. Um, but we have, you know, we have such talented and skilled people and crafters and tailors in this country that it's just it's just often about reinforcing and teaching and collaborating. And you get this, these incredible end products and the standard generally um, of design in this country is incredibly high. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're getting there, and we're all pushing in credit in all, in all, um, in all, you know, in all design aspects, whether it be furniture or fashion mm. or jewelry or art. It's everybody's pushing incredibly hard, um, and you can see it in all the work. It's 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 up there, you know, with everything so, else. One of the things that Lucy McGarry mentioned up earlier was this idea that the silk came from China, and I suppose. What it raises for me is, is there an opportunity for us, and I suppose silk maybe not, because it's pretty much Chinese. Well, I don't know, actually. Is it not possible for us to start working with um, textile and and creating textiles in this country in a far more um, strategic way? Very much so. So there's been a um, rise of, we. I mean, we, we have mohair, um, farms Brilliant. Yeah. and all of that gets exported um, very little hits our market um, it's very hard to get access to it for eh? instance yeah. very and then we just can't we don't have access and then the raw materials often the raw materials center of the season and they they sort out that raw material um, but things are changing there's, there's certain people that are starting to work with the mohair factories there is I've heard of a place that's starting to to grow its own salt, but it's going to take a while. Yeah. So these things are happening. They're incredibly wonderful. You don't also pay on like just in um, a financial point of view. You're not paying import export fees. You're creating jobs. Um, it's sustainable. There's no carbon footprint. So all these things are coming. They're coming. Because designers are starting to see, we need this locally, we need to do this locally. So yeah. yes, all the silk that's bought in currently, as far as I know, is from overseas. But we, we get in there. And as soon as we can collaborate and work locally, 100% we will. We might start uh, working with the agriculture sector and start um, planting more mulberry trees. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. I have five boxes of stalkers at the moment. And lots of cocoons. That, that's fun starting. Oh, starting in my backyard. Yeah, kids and their mulberry leaves and that little silkworm. Um, exactly. Uh, Lisa, the, the, the process of this is obviously a long one. But if we look at your world, in order to do what you do, how many people do you employ? How challenging is it? We don't have much time on this, but I'd just like to get okay. your insights on that process. Okay, so I'm, I've been very blessed because I've been working with the same team for 15 years. Yeah. Um, and I don't strictly employ many, many people. I outsource. So little groups, they own their own businesses. Yeah. And then I, I outsource seasonally or weekly or how, how often I need to work with people. Obviously, in store, I have staff. Um, I have a, a tailor I've worked with for 15 years. Um, and we just, it's a family. It really, and we speak the same language. With, we all know what each other's needs, you know, are with, with how we make things. And it's this very unspoken um, world that we work in. So that's that's very lucky. If, if I need, we go bigger. And then I only work with businesses that work, you know, work for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you're focusing on small SMMEs and um, yes. supporting that very local economy. So it's local sustainability yes. that you're focusing on. Totally, 100%, yeah. Lisa, I suppose yeah. we have to close, and I bet you people are saying, well, we want to see more of the scarves, but we'd also see more of that uh, design work. How do they get hold of you? Okay, so I have a shop at 44 Stanley Avenue in Mill Park where the scarves are have been hung and beautifully created, and they're... Um, they're available there. So you can come and feel and touch and try on and actually see the quality. And they're also available on our online store and on Latitude's online store. So there's there's quite a few ways to access these cards. We want to say thank you so much for joining us. And there we go. That's how we 